Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about the political economy of dictatorship. Political economy started as an area of study within economics when economists started to realize that just because a policy was efficient, that didn't mean a politician would actually implement it. At the same time, political scientists were realizing that the new tools of game theory and statistical analysis that were generating new insights in economics could also be applied to a lot of topics they cared about. Now, initially, most of this research um, at the intersection of politics and economics concerned democracies, but over the past 30 years, more and more attention has been directed to authoritarian regimes. Our guest today is Annie Meng. Annie is a professor of political science at the University of Virginia, and I had the privilege of working with her while we were both at Berkeley. Her book is called Constraining Dictatorship from Personalized Rule to Institutionalized Regimes. It was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press as part of their prestigious series on the political economy of institutions and decisions, and won the William Riker Prize for the best book on political economy. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Peter. It's good to talk to you again, and thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, so, uh, so back when we had you at Berkeley, um, we initially got you started, uh, thinking about China and its ruling party. Um, and now you're working on Africa and arguing that parties and autocracies are actually way overrated. So, so where did we go wrong? Yeah, I know. I've, I've done, I did such a 180. <laughs> um, actually, so I think um, how I got my start um, at Berkeley really actually kind of informed me of where I think the literature maybe had some blind spots. And it, and it was really helpful in kind of informing me of, of you know, where I ended up going with my research. Um, and so, as you mentioned, when I was a grad student at Berkeley, originally, I thought I was going to write my dissertation um, trying to understand the ruling party in China, the CCP, and basically how it became such a strong party. Um, I realized um, when I was trying to put this project together that to a certain extent, we we really were taking party strength for granted. Um, you know, I, I remember kind of brainstorming my topic with um, China scholars and I was getting responses like, oh, wow, actually, like we you know, we just kind of take the strength of the CCP as given. Like that is an interesting question of like, how did we get there? Um, and so that kind of inspired me to think about the kind of origins of institutions a little bit more seriously. And simultaneously, I realized that if I really wanted to understand 
variation and institutional strength, um, I probably shouldn't study an outlier, right? (laughs) I I realized Mm -hmm. that I I maybe needed to study, A, a lot more cases, um, and B, I needed to study cases that really kind of ranged in, in the kind of levels of party strength that they had, instead of focusing primarily on um, you know, the case that is an outlier that is like one of the strongest parties, um, which is the case of China. Um, so then that's that's how I kind of got inspired to still uh, kind of study this question of, of variation and, and party strength. Um, but I, I switched my regional focus to Africa um, because I, I started working with uh, Leo Ariola at Berkeley and he just kind of roped me in. He was like, you know, there's a ton of variation <laughs> in Africa. Um, and so I, I wrote my dissertation on um, trying to understand um, kind of party development and variation and in institutional party strength in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. But interestingly, um, one of the biggest takeaways, actually, that I got from my dissertation was I actually realized how weak the average ruling party is in your kind of typical autocracy. Um, one of the most interesting descriptive statistics, I think, that um, really kind of informed a lot of my research was, uh, you know, a simple thing that I did was I counted the number of years ruling parties were able to survive in power past the um, death or departure of the founding leader. And the vast majority of ruling parties um, are just not able to survive the without its founding leader. It's about 60% of these parties just immediately fall um, without the leader. Um, so interestingly, after writing a whole dissertation on ruling parties, my biggest takeaway was actually how, how kind of weak um, most of these parties are, a lot of them are just kind of like empty shells attached to leaders. Um, So that inspired the kind of one other big change and and one other big shift um, in my research focus that kind of culminated in the emphasis of my book, which is I then turned my focus from parties um, to executive power, um, which I think is, is really kind of the central nexus of power in dictatorships. Um, it's actually like a little bit funny that um, even though we the scholarship on authoritarian regimes has really been kind of reinvigorated since 2000, um, we don't actually have like a ton of studies that focuses on executive power, um, even though dictatorships, one of the kind of fi- defining features of dictatorships is that power is concentrated at, you know, at the very top, often in one person. Um, so how I ended up kind of focusing on executive power was I was like, I, I need to just kind of look at the thing directly, right? Look at presidential power and dictatorships and try to understand why in some cases, um, executive power becomes limited. And in other cases, um, it remains very unlimited. And, and, you know, some dictators are able to do largely whatever they want. Um, okay, so yeah, well, so, wait, that so, was, yeah, yeah. So, so maybe to just, um, uh, back up to the big picture and give people context who don't know um, much about uh, how this how this study has evolved. Um, could you uh, maybe just talk us through sort of the evolution of political science thinking about authoritarianism and authoritarian institutions over kind of the you know the the bird's eye view over the past uh, sort of 40, 50 years? 
Yeah, totally. Um, the evolution of this scholarship is really interesting, actually. So, um, you know, so, so this this um, the literature kind of had its first big period around the kind of 50s and 60s, kind of coming out of you know World War II. And um, at the time, what's really interesting is in general, we all thought that dictatorships um, were kind of like this weird transition period. We Political scientists originally thought, kind of assumed that all countries would um ultimately democratize. We thought that that was the kind of endpoint that every country would get to. And we used to think that dictatorships were these kind of like weird flukes, you know, of like uninterrupted, of interrupted periods in the middle where, you know, a country kind of would fall into a period of dictatorship on its way to ultimately democratizing. Um, and so for a long time, we kind of didn't take dictatorships super seriously. We assumed that institutions that emerged in dictatorships, um, you know, institutions like constitutions, parties, legislatures, we assumed that it was all just rubber stamp institutions, that they really didn't do anything, they didn't mean anything. Um, and the form of dictatorship that we focused on initially in the kind of 50s and 60s um, were kind of totalitarian dictatorships, right? So like Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. In general, we thought that all dictatorships relied very heavily on kind of like repression um, to stay in power. So that was kind of like the first generation of literature. Um, and then the Cold War um, ended in the early 90s. And we, you know, we, we saw a bunch of dictatorships fall and we thought that like, this was it, right? We were like, okay, we're done with dictatorships now. We've entered this like world of democracy, right? Huntington's third wave. Um, and, and we thought that that was kind of like going to be it with, with di dictatorships. Um, but as time passed, um, it became obvious that that was wrong, right? Like a lot of these transitions either kind of fell back into dictatorships um, just because a dictatorship falls does not necessarily automatically mean that the next regime will be democratic. Um, a transition from a dictatorship to another dictatorship is the, actually the most common kind of transition. Um, furthermore, we kind of slowly started to realize that, um, you know, the introduction of things that looked democratic, like the introduction of multi-party elections, um, weren't necessarily unseating incumbents. So this is very true in Africa, where plenty of incumbents from the 80s um, were able to introduce multi-party elections in the 90s, but still stay in power and, and kind of, you know, quote unquote, win those elections, Right. Like, you know, whether those elections were genuinely free and fair or whether they were kind of being manipulated by the regime. Um, so then that ended up inspiring the kind of next wave of literature. So in the starting in the early 2000s, and I think that this literature was very much reinvigorated um, by a very con you know, consequential piece by Barbara Geddes. Um, published in 2000, where this kind of next wave of research on dictatorships, um, A, kind of, I think, really kind of questioned this assumption that all countries would, were, would democratize. So we importantly started to recognize authoritarian regimes as a you know, type of regime that could survive for a very long time. Um, and B, what was really notable about Barbara Geddes's piece 
was that she highlighted that there are different types of authoritarian regimes. Some regimes rely a lot more on kind of coercive power and repression. Other types of authoritarian regimes um, you know, rely more on the use of kind of co-optation and introducing, um, you know, limited amounts of contestation um, in institutions like parties and legislatures. So I would say that where the research is now is kind of digging even more into these very important observations. Um, and a lot of the new research now really tries to understand um, kind of variation in the kind of strength and the function of these institutions. Um, and a lot of the research now, I think, is really um, is really kind of digging into these different kinds of authoritarian regimes and very much still recognizing autocracy as possibly a very stable form of government. Um, a lot of the research now has also been connecting um, kind of methods of authoritarian survival with um, kind of democratic or autocratic backsliding. Um, so I, I would say that's kind of how the, the research has evolved over time. Okay. And so then, um, so then you come in and you said you were looking at, you're looking at institutions and initially thinking parties were going to be really important, um, but found they weren't actually one, one sort of slightly side question, but how did, so the people who did the uh, earlier research that did find that, that having a party was associated with longevity, did they, did they just categorize any regime as a party regime if they had a party or did they, cause you'd think that, that maybe there'd be some distinction between kind of what was transparently just a party that's a tool of the, the one, the one big man versus a party that seems like it, it has power. But what you're saying is that the majority of these parties really are just, you know, they just, just kind of vanish as soon as the, the guy dies or, or loses power. Yeah. So there's, I think that there's two things that there's, there's kind of two things that was going on with the kind of earlier research on parties in the two thousands. So there's two different ways to um, codify the existence or strength of parties and dictatorship. So one way to do it is what Barbara Geddes did, which is she created these categories of authoritarian regimes, um, primarily um, party-based regimes, um, military dictatorships, and personalist regimes. And she argued that, you know, for the party-based dictatorship kind of type, these are regimes where the party is very strong and there's a lot of kind of collective decision-making. Um, however, I think that a, um, a kind of weakness with that approach is that these cases were all hand-coded. Um, and so with hand-coded cases, it's often... Um, you know, a bit reliant on kind of like subjective decision making, right? Like how strong in like how strong does the party have to be to like fall in this category? Different coders might have kind of different expectations or kind of different internal criteria for that. So you mm -hmm. end up having a bit of measurement error when you do it that way, right? Um, furthermore, um, you know, I, I've, I've kind of studied these categorizations very carefully, and I think that some of the party-based regimes are probably um, maybe kind of miscoded because um, some of them um, are actually regimes where the party did not survive in power past the founding leader. Um, so, for instance, um, Sakutori, uh, the first president of Guinea, um, hit, you know, when he was in power, his 
Um, his regime is coded as a party-based regime by the by the regime typology framework. So, you know, technically he had a ruling party, the PDG. Um, however, um, the after Sakatori died um, of natural causes, but after he died, um, there uh, the military swoops in and um, takes over power in a coup uh, before succession plans can be finalized, they immediately banned the party. And so effectively, they very quickly ended Sekutori and his you know, PDG regime right after the leader dies. So we definitely have cases like that um, in terms of you know, the, the existing coding of party-based regimes. So I do think that there's some measurement error there. Um, the other thing that we have discovered um, with with uh, with research that kind of took a second look at this finding that there was, you know, this relationship between party-based regimes and regime longevity is that in Ben Smith's article, um, he has a 2010, I think, World Politics article. Um, he actually shows that if you drop the two longest surviving party-based regimes, um, uh, Mexico under the PRI and the Soviet Union, then actually the statistically significant result disappears. Um, so he, he highlights that this finding was probably being driven by, by two outliers, right? Like two of the strongest cases. Um, the other way to, um, to, to kind of document the existence of parties is the approach that Jen Gandhi took um, in her work, which is um, which was a much more objective way to code parties. Um, so instead of trying to make assessments of how strong the party is, um, all she did was note whether um, party activity was kind of allowed in the regime, right? Was there a ruling party? Were there opposition parties? Um, the nice thing about this approach is that it's very objective. We don't have to make any subjective decisions um, and uh, it can be replicated. Um, however, the so actually what she finds in her book is that she didn't see a relationship between the existence of parties and regime longevity. Um, and I think part of what's going on there um, is that, uh, you know, most regimes have parties. Um, there really is not a lot of variation in terms of the existence of parties. Virtually all regimes have them. And so that ends up being a little bit too crude of a measure to, to kind of try to capture any kind of relationship between parties and, and regime durability. But um, then the other measure you're saying was was basically because it was subjective, it tended to be colored by kind of the outcomes at some level. And so mm-hmm. so you you tend to code it as stronger if it acted like a strong regime, which is more successful, but then that kind of gets your gets your causality flipped so you can't really make the claims. Exactly. Exactly. It's really hard to um to to code these things um you know independently, like knowing whether, you know, we we all kind of like know whether most of these historical regimes survived or not. Right. So it's a little bit hard to be like truly unbiased in trying to code the strength of the party. But what I think is really funny is like the fact that so the you know this idea that ruling parties are central to regime uh, durability um, has been such a big argument in the authoritarian regimes literature. Yet the empirical support has actually been very kind of shaky <laughs> this whole mm-hmm. time, and so I, I kind of realize that, and I, I think that it's kind of interesting. Um, 
yeah, there, you know, there, there actually isn't a ton of empirical evidence of the party argument, even though it's been such a big one in the, in the literature. Okay. So, so, uh, so Jen Gandhi with, with one approach, um, she, she said that, you know, it looked like parties weren't actually that significant, although, you know, with the caveat that almost everyone has some kind of party, at least nominally. So there's not a lot of variation. So she focused, um, more on, on legislatures, um, so what, what's your, uh, view on that? Cause you, you, you argue we should move beyond that as well. Yeah. So the, so legislatures, um, end up kind of, it's a similar argument as the party's argument where legislatures are actually extremely common in dictatorships as well. Um, basically the, all dictatorships, especially those, um, you know, in the post-Cold War period, um, dictators have basically learned that a really important survival strategy is that they need to appear somewhat democratic. So um, a, a kind of large argument that I use to set up my book is that nominally democratic institutions, those that we institutions that we associate with democracy, parties, even opposition parties, um, legislatures, elections, courts, constitutions, all of these things both have been really common in dictatorships and are almost universally present now, especially since the end of the Cold War. So even in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, 70 to 80 percent of dictatorships had legislatures. Um, and that percentage, um, you know, approaches 100 percent at this point. Um, and so it's just become very common for autocracies to kind of adopt these, um, you know, pseudo democratic institutions, but not necessarily give them a ton of independence or power over the executive. Um, but because these institutions have just become so common, um, it's they're not super helpful in helping us understand variation and regime durability. Although I do think that um, an important kind of place for research, and we're seeing a lot of that research now um, in, in kind of current work, is to understand variation and the strength of these institutions, right? So some, you know, some legislatures and autocracies are way more independent and active than others, right? So I know that there's a lot, a lot of research looking at the legislature in Vietnam, for instance. Um, same thing with ruling parties, right? Some parties are a lot more institutionally strong than others. Um, and so I, th- I think it's great that like where a lot of the current research is, is trying to understand variation um, in these institutions that have become incredibly widespread. Okay, so you're not so you're not just arguing that these are only like window dressing that you put on so that the aid agencies will still donate to you and the uh, the U.S. will be less likely to uh, to invade you and try to make you <laughs> uh, into a, a, a real democracy. Um, but but you're saying that maybe there's that mo- that motivation is there. So that's why pretty much almost 100 percent of um, countries, um, no matter how dirty, at least at least have that kind of uh, thin veneer going on. But you're saying that. Um, so there, so there is research, uh, which is not, not primarily what you're doing, but research that is finding that within these categories, like within the leg- countries that have legislatures, um, or, or parties, there are some that matter more and some that, some that don't matter. Um, but you, you went in a different direction with your own, uh, analysis of institutions. So, um, so why don't we, uh, why don't we talk about that now? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like Ken Apollo is doing a lot of great work trying to study variation in legislative strength in Africa. Um, so I, I think that that is 
really important. And I have um, been kind of accused of maybe dismissing nominally democratic institutions a bit too much in my book, which I think is a, is a totally fair point to make. Um, I agree with, with, you know, what you're saying that, you know, some of these institutions can be really strong. Um, I just tend to be a bit more kind of skeptical um, just because even in places where these institutions have a bit of independence, executive power still looms really huge in most autocracies. Um, you know, even in even in the cases in Africa that Ken is looking at, where the legislature does have some independence, um, you know, they're often battling with these like hugely bloated executive branches. And for some reason, we just haven't studied regime executives as much. Um, you know, for, for scholars in, of authoritarian regimes and, and you know, ho- hopefully um, we'll, we'll do it some more. But yeah, that's that's why I turned my focus to that in the book. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as you said, right, we've sort of, I mean, probably partly just we're kind of studying autocracies. It sort of took the tools and the concepts that we knew from studying democracies. And so they're, of course, understanding, you know, how the laws are made and who gets into the legislature and who gets seats and, and all this kind of stuff. Um is really crucial. So it's a natural first thing to, to look at, but, but you're right. You know, if we go back to thinking like, right, this is a dictatorship and, you know, our sort of basic reference model for that is like, there's, you know, one guy who tells everyone what to do, then we should look at, you know, more at, at who that one person is and, and how they, you know, how, how they tell people what to do and how much um, I actually had um, uh, May Hassan on uh, a few weeks back to talk about her book, which is kind of looking more more downstream, looking at the bureaucracy that um, dictators and, and other governments um, had, and how they kind of uh, implement their decisions through through the bureaucracy. But you're looking at this at more at the higher level, still at the very elite level of the executive, and kind of immediately around him. So, um, so you focus on uh, primarily success, the policy over succession and, and term limits. So tell tell me why um, why we should care about those and and what you what you concluded. Yeah. Um, so I um, look, so I basically look at two aspects of the regime executive. So the first thing that I do, um, which is what you just noted, was I looked at a couple of key constitutional rules. Um, specifically, I was looking at constitutional rules that limit executive power. Um, so the two things that I looked at are term limits and succession rules. Um, So I think term limits are a little bit more intuitive in terms of how they limit presidential power, um, right? They tell you when a president is, in theory, supposed to step down, although presidents definitely try and succeed to either amend or remove term limits sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, The other kind of constitutional rule that I look at are is um, whether the Constitution has a formal procedure um, explaining how leadership succession policies um, will operate in the regime. So the reason why this ends up being a constraint on the executive um, is that it basically designates a hierarchy, right? It gets rid of this idea that there is one leader that he is completely irreplaceable, um, that there is kind of no hierarchy of power and that there is no replacement for this one leader, right? Um, The way that leadership succession policies often look like in autocratic constitutions is, you know, it'll say um, if the office of the presidency were to fall vacant, either because of, you know, the death of the leader or illness or just because the leader is incapacitated, um, it's the vice president 
um, who will become the um, kind of de facto president. Um, so by kind of naming the succession hierarchy, um, the, the kind of person who is the designated successor becomes a very obvious focal point um, f- to be the next incoming incumbent, right? And so empirically, um, this is actually what we see in the cases. So I also, I, I kind of study leadership succession in the book, as well as I have kind of um, other articles on it, where um, I, I find that um, the, the kind of most common type of peaceful leadership succession in Africa is, the, is for the designated successor. So whoever gets named in the constitution, it's most often the vice president. Um, that person usually kind of successfully um, succeeds the, the president either after he dies or after the president kind of, you know, voluntarily leaves office. Um, In fact, um, the, so the fact that the constitution kind of designates an alternative leader ends up kind of constraining the president himself because elites basically have this other person to rally around um, if the president, you know, isn't holding up his end of the bargain in kind of sharing rents and spoils with them. So just the very um, kind of act of designating an alternative center of power can be a really powerful type of constraint on executive power. And in fact, we have another term um, that kind of gets at that in political science, which is the crown prince problem, right? Leaders are often afraid that they're going to be overthrown by their own crown prince, by their own designated successor, precisely because the constitution is kind of identifying who the next leader is going to be. Um, in addition to constitutional rules, I also look at um, appointments in the presidential cabinet, um, which is the kind of highest body of the regime. Um, so specifically, I look to see whether the president is actually appointing elites to two key positions in the regime, in the cabinet. So one is I look at the office of the vice president, and two is I look at the office of the um, minister of defense. So the idea here is that when presidents appoint other elites as the vice president and as the minister of defense, um, they are delegating authority and they're basically handing over access of these incredibly powerful ministries over to another elite. So, so what were the, so uh, actually, let me back up and ask two questions about measurement, just to understand like what the alternatives are. So you mentioned like successor policy. I mean, you know, as an American, it just seems to me like, well, of course the vice president would replace the president, you know, and uh, that just seems like, you know, I'd have to actually had to think like, oh yeah, that probably is in the constitution. And I think I remember there's a list of like other people who would, you know, replace them, but you know, uh, fortunately we've never had more than, you know, one assassination at a time, but like the, um, what what is the alternative like is it so people just write a constitution and then they say he's president and they just don't mention they presumably presumably mention that this person can be replaced at an election if you know if they're pretending that they have fair elections so so that would be one process of replacement but you're saying there's no sort of emergency backup uh, yes, option. that's right. So um, in cases where there is no succession procedure in the Constitution, they just don't mention it at all. They don't mention what happens if the dictator were to die or be incapacitated, which, as you can imagine, is really dangerous, right? 
there's absolutely no backup plan detailed. Um, another thing that happens, um, this is kind of much more rare, but it happens sometimes is the constitution will have really vague and confusing um, instructions. So for instance, um, I can't remember exactly which country this was anymore, but I, I remember reading one um, you know, kind of supposed leadership um, succession, you know, rule in the constitution where they were like, if, you know, if the president were to die, then, um, you know, his advisory council will get together and they will talk about it and then they will figure out the best plan moving forward. Right. So, you know, maybe some language about what to do in, in case the president dies, but no clear indicator of who the successor will be. And so, you know, of course, all the elites are going to end up fighting over who gets to be the interim president, right? So not really solving the collective action problem there. Right. Um, it's very, it's actually surprisingly common for, for, you know, a lot of leaders to not want to the constitution to specify succession rules. So, um, you know, Exactly because they're afraid of the crown prince problem, right? So, for instance, the first post-independence president of the Ivory Coast, Hufwe, was kind of like famously afraid of the crown prince problem. And uh, so not only did he not have any formal succession procedures in the Constitution, he actually left the office of the vice president vacant for a long time because <laughs> he didn't okay. even want to risk you know, yeah, I was wondering any, about that because you mentioned yeah, anything looking like a de facto successor there in place. Um, so, yeah, a lot of leaders are are very afraid of doing this. So the cabinet appointments you mentioned, so the vice president is one, so they just might leave it empty. What And the minister of defense, would they just not appoint anyone to be minister of defense or they would make themselves minister of defense? Yeah, work? exactly. So, um, you know, as Americans were, well, maybe less so during the Trump administration, but, um, you know, as Americans, we're used to kind of like healthy, normal, functional cabinets, right? We're used to, you know, cab, you know, just we, we're used to there being a full cabinet. Everyone's appointed to these positions. You know, they're not constantly being shuffled. Um, that is absolutely not the case with autocratic cabinets. So some, so a couple of different, there's a couple of different things leaders can do um, to not share power with elites. So um, one strategy is vacancies, right? Yep, there are absolutely cases where a leader just never appoints a vice president never appoints a minister of defense. Sometimes they get rid of the cabinet position entirely. Um, in a more extreme case, they will also do self-appointments. So sometimes leaders will make themselves their own defense ministers or their own vice presidents. Um, the My favorite observation in my data set, the most extreme example, was um, there was a period of time where I think it was the first president of Gabon um, named himself to a third of all cabinet positions. <laughs> um, so there's definitely lots of strategies that um, leaders take to not give a, an elite um, access to these positions. Um, and the reason why um, appointing elites to these positions is so consequential is, um, you know, not only do you kind of visit, are, are you kind of, do you visibly 
um, demonstrate that you're willing to kind of delegate these important positions to other elites, aka, you know, again, creating a, a kind of hierarchy where you're not seen as irreplaceable and kind of the only leader that's making decisions, um, these cabinet positions are really powerful. They, they come with a ton of resources, um, you know, even just beyond the kind of lucrative salaries, cars, housing, you know, they come with a ton of government contracts as well. Um, and just a lot of monetary resources that allow these elites um, to kind of consolidate their own power base um, and kind of, you know, get, get their own supporters by being able to, for instance, hand out these government contractors to their own allies, right? And so power is really being kind of shifted and shared with elites when the leader delegates these positions to other people. So there's no sort of loyalty story here at all. I'm just thinking like in the in the China politics literature, there's definitely maybe not so much at the very tip top elite levels. That may be one difference. But like there's a lot of people who've done a lot of work to sort of classify like who appointed whom. And then they assume, well, if, if you appointed someone to a position, then they owe you and they'll be they'll be loyal to you. You have a special relationship either. It's either caused by you doing the appointment or maybe, you, you know, the fact that you appointed them reveals that you were connected Um but you're kind of saying that it's, if not the opposite, but just that maybe there there is there is no loyalty among those uh, those top top leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my perspective is that it actually really sucks to be a dictator. Dictators really have no friends. Um, I, I get this question a lot, right? Where it's like, well, isn't it just safer for the leader to like name his friends or his family members or you know, in Africa, you know, his co ethnics is kind of like, you know, a, a, an important in-group. Um, mm-hmm. But empirically, when we look at the data, um, leaders are, dictators are overthrown by their so-called friends all the time. Um, it's actually very common for leaders in Africa to be overthrown by their co-ethnics. Um, in fact, co-ethnics actually have a higher rate of successfully deposing the leader. Um, also, leaders are deposed by family members all the time. Um we, you know, we see this not just in Africa, but, you know, in, in kind of European monarchies, it was very common to be overthrown by a brother, a cousin. Um, within sub-Saharan Africa, there's actually more cases of a leader being deposed in a coup by a family member than a leader successfully passing on power to a family member, right? And so these kind of so-called friendships or relationships that you would think are kind of like safe and loyal, um, really actually break down when you put people, um, you know, near the very apex of power, right? And you kind of like dangle the possibility of, of being the top dog to them. Um, a lot of these loyalties disappear very quickly. I guess that makes sense. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, you, can, you can even call it the crown prince problem, you know, and typically the crown prince is the son of the king. But, uh, you know, once he decides his dad's getting old and needs to be replaced, but doesn't want to step down, then he may... Uh, you know, his, his, his family loyalties may decline. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so all this sounds like a great reason why, um, if I'm the, if I'm the dictator, I should make sure not to, you know, I should, I mean, not, I mean, I feel like I'm curious about the history, but that's a little sidebar, but I, I imagine you probably actually have to like go and delete that section from your draft constitution about like what happens when I die, because, you know, most, most functioning constitutions and usually everyone starts, uh, by, you know, at least copying the basic structure from someone else would actually mention the successor policy, you know, term limits, obviously that, that different countries have different opinions about that. So 
that's that's not as much of an active decision. But the successor policy is maybe an active decision, and then obviously to you know not bother to appoint anyone to a crucial uh, cabinet position or the vice presidency. Um, you know that all you've made a good argument for why as a dictator you shouldn't do that. So so why does anyone do that? Yeah. So um, what I argue in the book is that um, some dictators. Um, especially those that come to power really weak, end up kind of being forced to have to make these concessions. Um, When a leader comes into power initially weak and is at a very high risk of being deposed by his fellow elites, um, they end up having to um, find ways to credibly share power with his fellow elites, um, so that they basically are getting enough goodies to um, remain a supporter of the leader and of the regime. Um, so the reason why these cabinet appointments and also kind of codifying access to these high-level offices through constitutional rules like the leadership succession rules and term limits, the reason why this is a really good vehicle for um, these weak leaders to to maintain support of elites is because they actively shift um, political power into the hands of these elites. Um, So this is a really big theme in my book, which is, you know, it's not necessarily enough just to kind of put some rules down on paper. Um, It's about whether these rules that are created actually empower and give resources to specific elites. So I think that the kind of cabinet appointments is a really good illustration of this. When an elite gets appointed to a cabinet position, um, not only do they get the kind of influence and prestige of, of being, you know, the minister of defense, they also are able then to control all of the resources um, associated with that ministry. Given that, um, coups are the most frequent way in which leaders are overthrown, um, controlling the military by being the minister of defense is very, very important, right? So that is a huge kind of, you know, giveaway that the president is giving to the elite who's appointed as the minister of defense. Um, but so that's when sort of, I'll, well, so let me just interrupt, sorry. Um, uh-huh. that, that's kind of an, uh, an outcome or maybe an intermediary step, right? So you're giving more power to this other person. Um, you know, I was wondering with the, um, you know, some of the pushback, especially in authoritarian regimes about analyzing any kind of formal institutions or especially like rules on paper is that, you know, in a dictatorship, who cares what the rules are on paper, right? You have this successor policy, you have these term limits, you also have like free, you know, you've, I'm sure you've promised to make, have free and fair elections and freedom of speech and all these other things, you know, there's lots of lovely stuff in that constitution. But if the, you know, what really matters is like how powerful that, that top guy is and what deals he's struck with other people in the, um, in the system. So, so how do you, how do you respond to that in, in, arguing that still this successor policy and term limits is still an important measure of, of power that's been given up? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so not all constitutional rules are equally powerful, right? Um, so one distinction that I make between succession rules and term limits, actually, and, and this is a distinction I make in the book, is that I argue that um, term limits ends up constraining leaders way less than succession policies. Um, So the logic here is that succession policies, what it does is it actually designates um, a, it designates 
a specific elite as an alternate leader, as kind of an alternate center of power, right? So when a succession policy says, for instance, the vice president will be the is the designated successor, every elite in the regime knows that the vice president is most likely going to be the next leader. So then the president ends up needing to contend with this other person who everyone kind of has built their expectations on as the future incumbent. This is very different from term limits, especially constitutions that have term limits but no succession procedures, because term limits are just kind of an open promise to step down, right? But then what happens if the leader violates these term limits and doesn't step down? If there aren't um, successor policies in place, elites actually don't know who the next leader would have been. And so the, the elites kind of don't know who's losing out the most, right? Would I have been the next leader? It's actually not sure. And so something like that, which is a lot more vague in kind of laying out the hierarchy of power, ends up not kind of solving the elite collective action problem. Um, and so that's that's kind of an example of how succession procedures shifts power in favor of the designated successor, but term limits without succession procedures um, really don't kind of identify a hierarchy and doesn't p- empower a specific elite. Um, so it's really about the content of these rules that should help us judge whether these are just kind of words on paper or whether specific elites are becoming empowered. Okay. And so um, with the, with those measurements, then how do you, what do you actually, uh, you, you mentioned you, you have a, a sample of um, uh, basically all or most of sub-Saharan Africa um, for uh, the, most of the, the period of independence. Um, and what do you, what do you find? What are the, what are the key results that you get from that? Yeah. So um so in so kind of connecting this with your earlier question um, about you know why would a leader ever share power, um, I argue that it's it's these kind of initially weak leaders who would be overthrown by um, regime elites in the absence of a credible commitment to share power with them. These are the types of leaders who end up being kind of forced to have to implement. Um, these these constitutional rules. And these are the kinds of leaders who have to, um, you know, allow elites to take over as vice president, minister of defense, other key minister positions. Um, on the other hand, leaders who come to power already extremely strong um, and face no, basically no risk of being overthrown. Um, these strong leaders really don't need to do anything to make sure they stay in power, right? Um, you know, strong leaders have already consolidated power. Um, they really face no real threat from other elites. Um, so why would they give away the goodies of the regime, right? These are leaders who would love to just serve as their own minister of defense and vice president and minister of finance and collect all of the rents associated with those offices themselves instead of sharing it with elites. And when leaders come into power already strong, um, they really don't need to worry about elites complaining, right? They can do whatever they want. And elites are just already in a kind of a very weak position. Um, so this is basically what I see um, when I look at the data. So um, 
I, uh, I kind of approach measuring leader strength in a couple of different ways. Um, so I basically, um, you know, so my argument is about the kind of initial strength of the leader, right? What kind of position are they in when they first take power? So my measurement strategy is um, to basically look at the ways in which leaders came into power as a way to kind of get at how powerful they are relative to other elites at the start of the regime. Um, so there kind of isn't one perfect way to do this, but I, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of approximate it, approximate it in a couple of different ways. So one thing that I do is I, I basically um, compare founding leaders against kind of leaders that took power later. So founding leaders usually come into power, um, usually come into office in a, in a position of strength. Um, so founding leaders are basically the kind of first, um, the first leader to come into power um, in Africa. These were, you know, largely kind of post-independence leaders who took power kind of immediately after independence was granted. Um, these founding leaders were um, seen as, you know, very legitimate. They're, they're kind of known as the, quote, founding fathers of the regime. Um, you know, they're very popular. There's usually a lot of kind of initial excitement um, after independence is first granted. Um, so these leaders came into power much stronger compared with leaders that kind of took office later, you know, decades later. Um, the other reason why the kind of non-founding leaders, the kind of successor leaders, often were much weaker autocrats is actually by design. So, um, when so leaders will often purposefully appoint weak elites as their successor um, because they're afraid of the crown prince problem, right? They don't want their successor to overthrow them. So it's actually very common for presidents to designate a weak successor, a weak elite as their designated successor. So a lot of these successors were actually quite weak by design. Um, so what we see is that founding leaders compared to kind of successors or just kind of leaders that came into power later, founding leaders are um, less likely to have formal constitutional succession rules. Um, they definitely didn't have term limits. Um, and they were also less likely to appoint elites to these key positions in the cabinet. Um, another strategy that I that I kind of used to compare um, leader leader strength was I focused on the um, kind of subset of post independence leaders. So just looking at this kind of group of leaders that took power immediately following independence in these African states. Out of that subset of post independence leaders, I argue that there's basically two types of leader. Um, on one hand, there was the kind of leader of like a mass independence movement um, who um, kind of started this movement in the years prior to independence being granted. They were leaders of these kind of big grassroots movements that really fought for independence. Um, these leaders tended to have a lot of legitimacy going in. Um, so, you know, examples of this is uh, the first president of the Ivory Coast um, or, um, you know, the president of Guinea. These were just like, you know, very kind of pro-independence mass movement leaders. Right, that, that kind These of personal of, charisma and na national, exactly. national hero. So you've, you've told us about these strong leaders, the, the national heroes. Um, now tell us about who, who comes in who's weak. 
Where do they come from? How do they even get power yeah. if they're so weak? Yeah. So um, the other kind of post-independence leader um, who I argue are much weaker are basically leaders that essentially inherited their position from the outgoing colonial authorities. Um, so we see this in the case of um, Cameroon, for instance. We see this in Botswana. Um, the, the first post-independence president um, was not this like nationalist leader, Um they actually tended to kind of be bureaucrats from the former colonial state. Um, these these kinds of leaders um, uh, were basically kind of pushed by the colonial authorities to be the new leader. Um, and they're often seen as um, basically kind of like, you know, cogs in the colonial machine. They're seen as being kind of close allies of the outgoing colonial authorities, which honestly is is sometimes a bit of an accurate perception, right? So the first president of, of Cameroon, Ahijo, um, you know, the the outgoing French authorities like actually wanted him to be the president and actually kind of like heavily promoted him to be the first independent president because um, you know, they knew that he would maintain very kind of close relations with France. Um, and I, and he did. Um, and so these kinds of leaders who inherited their positions tend to be very weak when they first take power. They tend to be highly unpopular um, and they tend to um, get a lot of pushback, actually, from from kind of other elite factions within the regime. So these are the kinds of kind of post-independence leaders that are very weak. Um, so what I see in the data is again kind of consistent with my argument, which is the kind of founding nationalist leaders, the kind of founding fathers who who really had these mass movements. They were less likely um, to have formal succession rules, less likely to kind of make these elite appointments in the cabinet, versus leaders that inherited their positions but were very unpopular and very weak when they when they did take power. They did end up having to kind of make these concessions a lot more by appointing elites to these cabinet positions um, and, and having to kind of make these concessions just to maintain support from fellow elites. So why make a concession through a cabinet appointment? Why not just like build that person a, a hospital in their hometown or, you know, give them the, you know, give them some money or, you know, control over an oil well, something like that. Why, why actually give them political power that can be used against you so easily? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to um, the the theme that I was talking about, about like really needing to kind of shift power and empower specific elites. Um, so, you know, the alternative of kind of empowering elites and giving them access um, is to try to what we call, you know, do like a per period payment, right? Basically kind of, you know, give someone a bag of money, right? Which is the equivalent of just kind of like, you know, building a hospital in their area or giving them kind of temporary access to, to, to kind of like streams of revenue. The reason why these kinds of kind of, uh, temporary payments um, end up not being very helpful to stabilize a regime is because elites know um, that these are temporary streams of revenue that can be cut off very easily by the leader, right? So, you know, if I'm an elite and I'm a threat to the leader today, and he just kind of gives me temporary access to money, I know that if tomorrow, if I unfortunately kind of lose my edge over the leader um, and he's just kind of giving me these temporary payoffs, um, then he can cut off access um, to these spoils. And then I would be left in a very bad position tomorrow. 
The reason why um, these um, kind of government appointments end up being a way more kind of credible way to share spoils is precisely because they actually empower these elites, right? When the president um, names an elite to an important cabinet position, and especially if they keep that elite there for long periods of time. So I also look at kind of rotation rates. These elites end up kind of gaining authority over these specific ministries, right? Not only do they are they kind of getting spoils associated with this government position, they control a very important piece of the state. And in empowering them, it makes it a lot harder for the leader to just kind of stop paying them tomorrow um, or to just kind of, you know, immediately remove them from a position if, for instance, they've been in charge of the military for a really long time. So precisely because these cabinet appointments end up empowering elites and shifting power, that's what makes these promises a lot more credible. Right. So yeah, you can't trust a guy to, you can give someone money, but they can't trust that they'll they'll continue to have it as long as you still hold the gun in some sense. So you have exactly. to give them, give them access to some, some uh, a way to strike back at you. So, um, and then, and then what do you see uh, going forward? So do, do these institutional changes, um, you know, you talked about where they come from uh, and how do they play out later? Um, yeah. So in terms of um, kind of whether these institutions um, have any consequences for both leader and regime stability, um, I find that they do, but there's, there's kind of a small caveat, right? So um, a big question that, um, that the kind of scholarship on authoritarian regimes has really tried to focus on is whether institutions actually have an effect on leader or regime durability, right? Um, so what I argue here is yes, having these, um, you know, having these cabinet appointments and having these constitutional rules do end up stabilizing the regime. However, and here's where the second half of the book really, I'm sorry, here's where the first half of the book really informs the second half of the book. We have to think about who's putting these institutions in place in the, in the, in the first place, right? So what I have argued is that it's, it's these weak leaders who have to institutionalize and, um, you know, grant elites these cabinet positions and, and create these constitutional rules. Strong leaders can stay in power no matter what they do, right? It's kind of irrelevant. So what I argue is when we want to think about the consequences of these institutions on durability, we need to account for whether the leader who created them was strong or weak in the first place. So what I find is that um, for leaders who are weak, when weak leaders um, put in place these institutions like cabinet appointments or constitutional rules, it does end up lengthening their um, regime and stabilizing the regime. So these types of weak leaders who do institutionalize end up facing fewer coups compared with weak leaders who don't create these, these institutional commitments with elites. However, um, what I find consistent with my earlier argument is that um, it really these institutional creations or the absence of them really don't affect strong leaders. There are plenty of strong leaders who come into power already, you know, having 
basically consolidated power. There are there is no real elite threat. Um, these kinds of strong leaders end up not creating these institutional constraints, and they're able to stay in power for a really long time. So that's kind of conventionally what we understand to be like a personalist dictatorship, right? They don't create succession rules. They, you know, name themselves their own cabinet ministers. Some of these leaders are able to stay in power for a really long time, for decades, right? Think about like Mobutu um, in Zaire. Um, And, you know, consistent with my argument, um, we really have to take into account um, the kind of relative strength of the leader when assessing whether institutions have an effect on leader or regime strength. Okay, so... um... Well, we're running a little short of time. I wanted to, before we uh, close off, I wanted to ask you to uh, to stretch your argument and um, and uh, and humor me by by th- thinking a little bit about China. Um, and so, uh, I shared with you that just this uh, this morning, someone uh, called my attention to a quote from a book by uh, the investor Ray Dalio, who's been a big, uh, very bullish on China and and argued that it's really this great meritocratic system um, and you know a great place to invest, like he has uh, and all that. Um, and he says, um, there's a quote from his book saying, make sure that no one is more powerful than the system or so important that they are irreplaceable. For an idea meritocracy, it is especially important that its government, governance system is more powerful than any individual and that it directs and constrains its leaders rather than the other way around. The Chinese leader Wang Qishan drew my attention to what happened in ancient Rome when Julius Caesar revolted against the government, defeated his fellow general Pompey, seized control of the Republic from the Senate and named himself emperor for life. Even after he was assassinated and governance by the Senate was restored, Rome would never again be what it was. The era of civil strife that followed was more damaging than any foreign war. Now, apparently this gets Rome's history completely wrong, but um, it does <laughs> seem kind of consistent with uh, with your argument, right? That there's, uh, it can, even if you have a strong leader in power for some period of time, if they, you know, uh, undermine or never create institutions that um, would would constrain them, then the the subsequent conflict and instability um, might actually be might actually be worse. Um, so, um, but it's also you know particularly amusing because of course the the you know biggest uh, uh, elite level political development in China um, in the past few years has been that um, the top leader Xi Jinping has said or has has made it happen that there will not be any uh, term limits on him. He's uh, you know. There, there was he, he's removed the formal term limits on himself as president, and then also has uh, chosen not to appoint any focal successor, which was again something that uh, all the China experts in the media and in academia were all saying. Oh, look, here's this great thing. He's you know there's basically a two term limit, and uh, and there's a designated successor. So he's gotten rid of all that. So what's uh, what do you what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, so I think that thinking about China through the lens of my argument is really interesting. Um, So what's really interesting about China is that so they had the constitutional term limits. um, But what's really interesting is that leadership succession was actually governed by norms. Is that right? I don't think there were formal rules written down. Is that right, Peter? That's right. It was pretty much just understood that there would be a person who would be in the vice presidency and then would be kind of, yeah, if you were in the vice presidency in the term immediately prior to the other person having to step down, then you'd be the one who would be uh, chosen as president 
at the next uh, set of national meetings. But but the national meetings themselves, in principle, would be like an open vote. It was just understood that you were the you were the focal choice, and everyone was gonna gonna choose you. Yeah. So I I think it's actually quite remarkable that China has undergone so many peaceful transitions. Um, given that leadership transition, given that succession was um, kind of reliant on these norms, right? Although I think it's really important to note that the first leadership transition from Mao to Deng was very messy. And I mean, I, I think it was a really, really dangerous time for the regime, right? Like quite possibly one of the most dangerous periods for the regime. That transition could have totally fallen apart, right? Um, and I think that we we kind of think of China now as this like highly, you know, structured, highly institutionalized regime. But I think it's important to remember that the regime under Mao was very personalist. Um, and, you know, things really didn't start to become more institutionalized until the decades after um, you know, that initial kind of leadership transition. Um, so I, I think that, so, so, you know, going back to the fact that it's, it's kind of incredible that China has been able to experience multiple peaceful leadership transitions, um, you know, without these kind of formal rules on paper. Um, so I, I do see a couple of, um, cases where in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, so Tanzania comes to mind, um, where the leadership transitions actually um, kind of didn't go according to what was written down. So in Tanzania, um, for instance, um, the vice president is the designated successor. But what's really interesting is that um, the ultimate successors who took power were actually not the vice president. So um, however, they still ended up being peaceful. So in, in these kind of like small number of cases where either there just wasn't a formalized constitutional rule regarding succession or um, they, the regime was able to have peaceful succession without, um, you know, by deviating from the rules like Tanzania. Usually these are the cases where there was a really strong ruling party um, to kind of settle disputes within elites, right? So we also see this actually in the pre in Mexico, where succession was also kind of norm based, there actually weren't formal constitutional rules about succession written down. Um, and, you know, the the, pre- the president would kind of, you know, choose the next successor informally, and they were able to have many peaceful leadership transitions that way. But I think these are all cases where um, the regime actually did have a party that was strong enough um, to kind of be able to adjudicate um you know, elite infighting um, without having to write it down. But I just, I will say, I think messing with succession procedures is just generally really dangerous. I I think that that's where a lot of regimes fall, actually. Um, You know, because when you, when you mess with succession procedures, um, you know, the person who thought that they were going to be the head honcho next is really losing out a lot, right? And not only that person, but everyone else under them, right? Who was like getting ready for this like new alignment, who thought that they were going to have a sweet position in the next regime, they're also losing out too, right? And so, you know, messing with succession is is often a really, really dangerous thing. Um, so I'd be really curious to see what happens moving forward with Xi. Um, I, I think that like, I, I honestly think that, um, you know, getting rid of term limits is actually kind of less dangerous for him than if he were to really try to mess with succession. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I guess that's the, uh, but, but yeah, he definitely hasn't, hasn't, uh, you know, and, and, and like you said, there was never like a formal rule about like who, or if there is a formal rule, it was never that important, but like about, about who was, who was replacing him. But then, uh, yeah, there was, it's just been understood and it wasn't, it was actually, it was quite informal, like Deng Xiaoping pretty much, but chose, first of all, he had two successors uh, in the eighties, both of whom he, he kicked out of power if he decided that they were, you know, not going to work out for whatever reasons. And then he picked Jiang Zemin and more or less at the same time, um, picked Hu Jintao to succeed him. And so then Hu Jintao was sitting in waiting for, for over 10 years. Uh, and then he got to have his turn and then, um, and then six years or five, five years into his uh, term, then they were able to, then Xi Jinping kind of came uh, as a little bit of a surprise um, and was anointed as the next vice president. And that was actually, before then, there hadn't even been this whole like five year, five year 10 year cycle. Um, and so it just barely kind of got started. And then uh, I think we all jumped on it and said, aha, now they're super institutionalized and, and, and uh, their elites are going to always transition according to this nice clean system that will avoid conflict. Um, and then just as soon as we all started saying that, they then uh, had she pretty much just uh, threw the whole thing out the window. Um, but yeah, where how that will actually play out is, is remains to be seen. Do you think that we were too quick to call China like a very institutionalized system? Do you think it's actually less institutionalized than, than we thought, the regime? I think I think there's a lot going on institutionalized within the party, uh, but I think we definitely were too hasty in uh in thinking that the the succession was going to uh follow this nice tidy um formal procedure especially because it was an informal institution it wasn't that uh it had to go exactly that way and and they'd added you know they'd added term limits to the presidency but the party secretary which is really the most important role um i guess did not have term limits so so there was always a little bit of ambiguity um about that it seemed like they were lining up to something nice and clean but i mean in terms of actually fully following this thing that we were suggesting was a permanent institution, they, they never, they only really did it for, uh, you know, 10 years. Um, and normally when we think about institutional institutionalization, uh, we kind of want, you know, just as when we, just as like you said, you know, if you want to whether measure whether a party's strong, you have to kind of measure whether it lasts past the first leader. And if we want to measure whether a country's dem- democratic, we don't just look at whether they've had, some elections, but we look at whether there's been actually orderly transfer of power from one party to another. And I think there's a similar thing where, you know, it's, uh, it can be risky to, to rush to judgment about whether something's institutionalized if it hasn't really um, happened on a regular basis for, uh, for a significant period of time, even, even, and most importantly, I guess, like, like it within democracies, like even where it involves a transfer of power from, from one group to another, which that men then may be reluctant to transfer power back or onward when it's their turn. But anyway, but that's just, I didn't want to take us too far off on Africa, but I do want to get um, your, your view on that. I think, um, you know, in a sense where we started off with this is, you know, your, uh, you know, you getting started thinking about Africa did have a lot to do with, you know, being trained in political science techniques and saying, well, we need to compare against various alternatives. And of course, the, the, those of us who work on China tend to think so much about China, we don't even know, like, Oh, how, how do any other countries do it? We have, you know, we studied a little bit about the old Soviet Union and we kind of like hear some things from our colleagues, but it tends to be, um, tend to be less broadly versed in um, some of the statistical and empirical uh, realities across countries than, than other places. And certainly that's even, if anything, even more so among the kind of um, journalistic and commentary uh, 
class when who, who talk about China um, tends to be very, you know, everyone, everyone feels proud about whether they do or don't know like 3000 years of history and can name a whole bunch of emperors or something. But in terms of like what happened with, uh, you know, Uhui Wenyi in, uh, uh, in Africa, that's um, not something anyone feel embarrassed all about knowing nothing about, even though it's probably more relevant than, uh, than, you know, something that happened in the, in the Han dynasty. Um, anyway, but that's just my, my little soapbox. Um, and, and I, and I'm vulnerable to that as much, uh, uh, as, as anyone. Um, so, uh, well, just the last thing, just a couple minutes, tell me, tell me what you're working on next. Um, and then we'll, we'll sign off from there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, my, my next big project that I'm actually kind of just jumping into now, um, is basically the opposite of this first project. Um, so, um, my, my first book, um, thinks about how executive constraints get created and my new project um, is going to think about how executive constraints get weakened or removed. Um, so basically just the opposite um, of this first project. And the the way that I kind of got there um, was, um, you know, I, I was very aware that an assumption that I was making um, with the first book is that and I think that this is an assumption that actually a lot of us make in the kind of literature on authoritarian institutions is that, you know, when when an institution is created, we kind of assume that that we're done. Right. Like, uh, you know, an executive constraint is created. OK, great. It's there forever. Um, um, empirically, though. That's not the case, right? Like sometimes term limits get removed. Um, you know, there's been a there's been you know evidence of that in the news. Um, sometimes succession procedures get changed, altered, or removed. Um, you know, I, so so I kind of left the first book knowing very well that I was making this assumption um, about the kind of permanence of institutions, and so I really wanted to kind of pick up on that assumption in the second book and try to understand kind of when that's true and when it's not right. Like when does an institution after it's created, you know, when does it last and get and remains untouched um, versus, you know, under what conditions can leaders try to remove these existing constraints on their power? Um, What I'm really excited about actually is that for the second book now, um, Whereas the first book just collected data on Sub-Saharan Africa, um, the data set for the second book is actually going to be global. Um, so my my RAs just helped me finish collecting um, the same kinds of variables, constitutional rules, cabinet appointments, um, but on a global set of um, 120 something countries from 1960 to 2020. Um, so um, we're so I'll, I'll be able to kind of have a much more global perspective in the second book, and I'm also really excited that the that the data um, is kind of much more updated and basically. Um, you know, goes up until, you know, just two years, just one or two years ago. And I'm hoping that the book will also speak to this kind of emerging scholarship on democratic and autocratic backsliding, um, since I'll be focusing on kind of executive aggrandizement. Yeah, I guess we've heard a lot more about uh, democratic backsliding, partly because we've worried about it a lot in the US and in many other countries. But uh, that's a great point that I guess, you know, I guess, as in the example of Xi Jinping, there's, there's even autocrats can be, uh, can wipe away some of these institutions and, uh, and make them and bring even more power into their own hands, which, uh, is certainly an important phenomenon worth, uh, worth keeping track of and worth, and worth, you know, another thing that leads us away from, you know, just the simple, uh, kind of 
dichotomous thinking or of like that the only thing interesting about dictatorships is, is when will they democratize and, and how soon, um, but understanding really how they how they function and, and all the many things that happen within them that may or may not have any any long run connection to to democratization. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another big theme that's that's come out of my work is that, um, you know, there is a lot of talk about democratic backsliding. Um, but I think that w- one of the one of the big ideas that actually I think can, you know, might be a little bit controversial that came out of my first book is that a lot of cases that we thought were cases of democratization are, and, and this is especially true in, in Africa in the 1990s, these were actually instances of autocratic institutionalization, right? So the most important change that happened when the Cold War ended was not necessarily that these countries, you know, adopted democratic looking elections. By the way, they're often very much manipulated. Um, it's that they these dictators learned that they really can't um, rule alone, and that won't be stable, right? These dictators learned that the best way to be a stable autocracy is to kind of make these institutional pacts with other elites um, and, you know, have a regime that's based more on kind of joint rule. And a lot of times we kind of misunderstood that as moves towards democratization when really that was moves toward, you know, stable autocracy. So I I think one of the themes that's going to kind of appear in this new project is, you know, we're we're like freaking out about so-called democratic backsliding. And because we have this assumption that like once a country democratizes, it's supposed to remain a stable democracy forever. Um, We really need to take a step back and think about whether these were real instances of democratization in the first place, right? A lot of these cases were actually instances of the kind of more sophisticated form of institutionalized autocracy. Um, And so, you know, this idea that some of these leaders would then be able to kind of, you know, centralize or personalize power, given that their autocracies um, should be maybe a little bit less surprising and shocking to us now. So it's, it's really just kind of how you're thinking about it and, you know, whether you think you're seeing a, a democracy or an autocracy. And I think that we we need to kind of refine our views about what the modern day autocracy looks like. Um, it looks a lot closer to a democracy than you might think. Great. Well, on that note, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing your, your work. Um, again, uh, for people listening, the title of your book is Constraining Dictatorship. And uh, everyone should definitely rush out and get a copy because we, we just managed to sort of skim the surface of a, a lot of the topics in there. Um, and yeah, hope to see, hope to hear more from you very soon.